Thanks for listening to the Mornings with Carmen LaBerge podcast, made available thanks to support from listeners just like you. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. If we're gonna fly, we fly like eagles. Arms out wide. If we're gonna fear, we fear no evil. We will rise. By your power, we will go. By your spirit, we are bold. If we're gonna stand, we stand as giants. If we're gonna walk, we walk as lions. Good morning, good morning. Where in the word are you today? Where in the word? are you today? For those of you who've been listening to Mornings with Carmen for some period of time, you know this is a question I like to frequently ask. For those of you just joining us for the very first time, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Good morning. So glad you are with us today. Um, Where in the word are you today? That's a two-part question or a question that could be understood in two different ways. Where in the Bible um, are you encountering God today? You know, what part of his word are you immersing yourself in, soaking in, saturating in, meditating on? Where in the word are you today? We're going to um, we're going to look at today's growing your faith verse of the day from John chapter 15 here in just a moment. So where in the word are you today? There's one way to approach the question. The other way to approach the question um, is acknowledging and recognizing that Jesus is the word of God. He is the word made flesh to dwell among us. And there is a question um, as to whether or not you are in him or not. So where in the word are you today? Are you in Christ? Is Christ in you? Is Christ the animating influence of your life? Is he speaking the very word of God to you? Yes, through the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments by the power of the Holy Spirit, um, encouraging you today, where in the word, where in Christ are you today? Are you resting in Christ? Are you growing in Christ? Are you walking in Christ? Are you ministering to others in Christ? Where in the word are you today? Our growing your faith verse of the day comes from John chapter 15. This is in, an, uh, in the midst of an extended discourse where Jesus is speaking. So if you've got one of those, you know, red letter Bibles, <laughs> this section, yeah, it's all red. So John chapter 15, verses 12 to 14, Jesus speaking here. This is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I have loved you. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command. Um, it's a little bit strange, particularly on the day before Valentine's Day, maybe a little bit strange to talk about love as a command. But I want you to think about that for just a moment. Um, Love is a command of God. This is my commandment, Jesus says. Love each other in the same way I have loved you. There's no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command. This is um, after Jesus has washed their feet. This is after Jesus has instituted what we know as the Lord's Supper, what he experienced as the Last Supper. He gives them this command to love. This is my command, Jesus says. This is not casual or um, 
maybe when you feel like it. No, no, this is a command. So, and then he says, you know, love each other as I have loved you. And so you have to ask yourself, because there's a particular manner or quality to the love of Christ being commanded here. So how should we love? How? Well, first of all, you're not going to do it without Jesus. You're just not going to do it. You're not going to be able to love like Jesus. You're not going to be able to love others as Jesus would love them without Jesus. So just know that jumping in here. This is not something we can do in our own power or out of our own love. We just, frankly, we we don't love other people this much. But God does. God loves you this much, and God in Christ commands you to love others. As in Christ, God has loved you. So how has God loved you in Jesus? How has Jesus loved us? Well, from before creation, he loves us in his incarnation. He loves us by the revelation of who God is and what God is like, his character and his ways. Jesus loves us by invitation, inviting us to follow him and into himself and then into his work. He loves us by a demonstration of love, what love looks like. He loves us in our salvation, for sure, at the crucifixion and the resurrection. I mean, how much more could God love us than in, in, than in Christ, giving himself up in order that we might live reconciled to God, free of sin and free of sin's penalty and death? And Jesus loves us in glorification. We haven't experienced that yet, but that awaits us. And it awaits us in the way that Jesus loves us at the consummation. Again, when the kingdom arrives in its fullness and we dwell and reign with him forever and ever. Jesus loves us in all of these ways. And how do I know that Jesus loves us? For the Bible tells us so. It's a good day to uh, sing Jesus Loves Me. If you haven't, you know, if you haven't already sung over yourself in the same way that God sings over you, Jesus Loves Me is a really good one. Every sermon, by the way, should be a children's sermon. I don't know what other people are preaching, but, you know, uh, I'm hoping that um, pastors are embracing the reality that every sermon is a children's sermon because we're like little children and we just we just need to be reminded that we're loved. And so I'll just remind you today, you are loved. How do I know? The Bible tells me so. So we are uh, examining what God has said in the 15th chapter of the Gospel of John through Jesus, who says, this command I give you, that you love one another. So love is God's command. And what God commands, God provides. How great is that? How great is God that what he commands, he also makes possible and makes provision for? God provides for it. God gives us himself. And God is love. So in giving us himself, God gives us all the love we need to accomplish his will in loving as Jesus loves. How cool is that? So love is a gift. Love is a command. Love is a fruit. You could roam around there. Um, 1 Corinthians 13, John 15, 1 John 4, um, Galatians 5. There's no greater love, and there's nothing greater than love. Faith, hope, and love top the list, but the greatest of them, well, that's love. So love is in the air today because today is Valentine's Day Eve. I know that's not officially what it's called. It's like Galentine's Day or something ridiculous like that. Um, But it's the day before Valentine's Day, and people are desperate for love. And yes, they're looking for love in all the wrong places, but we as Christians know where real love can be found. So let's um, let's lead with Jesus today. 
let's um, show forth the love of God that people might know that they are loved. And when they ask how we know, how do you know? We can say, well, the Bible tells us so. Where in the word are you today? I am in John chapter 15, walking around with Jesus, who is love. Our brother Nick Pitts is going to join us next. We are going to revisit some of those ads from the Super Bowl and talk about how faith was expressed and how people of faith are responding and using those ads to advance the gospel. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Hello, neighbor. Mm-hmm. Nick Pitts is here, one of my faves. So I'm just going to lead with uh, with this. Hello, neighbor. Hello, neighbor. Great to be with you this morning, Carmen. I know. Okay. So was it your was the was the State Farm ad your favorite Super Bowl ad? Was the was the Kia ad with the girl um, on with the ice skates and that's such so sweet, um, such a sweet ad. Maybe it was the ad for the NFL uh, having a camp in Accra, um, Ghana. I don't know. Maybe maybe it was the Clydesdales. I don't know. What was your favorite ad? So it's almost a tie. So you, I'm an early 2000s kid. So growing up with that Boston Goodwill Hunting um, departed crew of Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. Loved oh. Dunk Kings. It was so good, but it was also tied with also the Christopher Walken. Um, his, uh, I believe it was BMW, where people were impersonating Christopher Walken. It was the making weird fun of, style of making humor. Making fun of best. Christopher Watkin, making fun of Christopher Watkin. Yes, it was interesting. Now, those are interesting choices. <laughs> this is that's well, a, that, that absolutely reveals the generation gap between the two of us, because during that Dunking's <laughs> ad, I said to Jim, we are not the target audience. <laughs> I just, I, like, I, lo- I, I loved it. Clearly, it was you. You. You were the one they were after. They captured me. What can I say? I wanted to go get some dunking uh, coffee after it. <laughs> ah, all right. Um, there were a lot of faith-related ads during the <clears throat> Super Bowl. Um, let's let's touch on uh, let's touch on a few of those. At, with a record-breaking audience of 123.4 million people. The Super Bowl featured a couple of ads from the group He Gets Us. And He Gets Us, uh, many uh, audiences will remember that that was a key part of uh, back by Steve Green family of depicting Jesus washing the feet of uh, individuals. It was just a fascinating ad that's now sparked controversy, all in an attempt to be evangelistic, to show Jesus as an individual that is loves them and is serving individuals instead of judging individuals. And Newsweek talked about how uh, there is uh, those on the left that are frustrated by it because it's backed by Steve Green and Hobby Lobby. Um, and those on the right are frustrated by it because they don't think it shares the full explicit gospel and is kowtowing to uh, cultural elites. And so uh, we find ourselves in the mix of singing like Tim McGraw, why you got to be angry all the time. <laughs> yeah, I do. Um, I, I have obviously seen um, the the pushback, um, people uh, people responding to the He Gets Us ads in ways that are not positive. All of the people who are responding that way um, are faithful, conservative Christians, which I do find interesting because um, that would be the group that I would hope would be the most interested 
in revealing Christ in this in this day and time in ways that actually do reach people. And so when he gets us, reaches somebody with their advertising, um, we as Christians, you know, we need to be ready to say, yeah, that actually is something that Jesus did. Jesus did actually wash his disciples' feet. Let me tell you the whole story of, you know, of the context, where he was, whose feet he was washing, what he said when he did it. Like, we're supposed to be the ones who are prepared to tell the story and who love to tell the story, not, you know, throw, um, throw I don't know, criticism on those who sort of revealed that there is a story worth telling. And so that's you know, my it, frustration. Like, I want people to love to tell the story and to know who Jesus is and what he did and that he's available to do today for you what he did for those first disciples. Completely agree. Uh, when I thought about it more, I, I continue to think there are three components that really do illuminate some of the outrage that we're seeing. One is uh, the concept by Cass Sunstein. It calls the law of group polarization that Essentially, the more you uh, align closely with those that are similar of mind of you, the further to the extreme that you go. And so essentially what you're seeing is just some groups that are so antagonistic, they're pulling themselves further and further to the right or to the left to where they're just not happy with really anything unless it's their version. The second piece is the intrusive thinking. Increasingly, we can't see a depiction of Jesus in modern day culture contextualized without reading politics into it. Intrusive thinking is the idea that we we have something on our mind and we see it everywhere. For Taylor Swift fans, they see signs of Taylor Swift everywhere they go, from the stoplights to the to 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 the gyms that they walk into. Um, and for when you're missing your loved one, you see them. You see reminders of them all the time. For some segment of the population, they see politics and everything, and so they see this as an attempt to read politics into religion when it simply isn't. It's just evangelistic. And then the third thing, and the most important probably, is it reminds me of my seminary professor. Professor, he used to say, uh, if you want to fish for men, you got to get wet. You got to know your audience. Now, here's an important caveat to that, though. I know Republicans that are atheists, just like I know Democrats that are believers. And so I never want to make synonymous your religious affiliation with your party affiliation. But I do know that there is a big gap between uh, individuals, religious nuns who identify as Democrats, 26 percent, and Republican religious nuns, which is 11 percent. So perhaps this was, if I give you that this is leading left, well, they know their audience because there's twice as more likely for Democrats and those that are sympathetic and identify lean towards Democratic issues that are religious nuns. And I want everyone to taste and see and know that God's good. So maybe I do contextualize the message towards the towards the left. So mm-hmm. be it. They still need Jesus just as much as I do. That's really good. Um, the Halo Prayer app also, um, you know, spent <clears throat> spent some dough um, to to get out there during a Super Bowl ad campaign. Pray every day this Lent on. Hallo, H-A-L-L-O-W. It's a it's a wildly popular Catholic prayer app. Um, I thought that was interesting, and um, not that not that the advertisers for um, for Hallo or Halo is it Hallo? I guess Hallo probably H-A-L-L-O-W. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, you know those advertisers are probably not listening, but once I saw the pictures and they have these you know these sisters up there with these you know the brothers who I recognize right I recognize. Mark Wahlberg, I recognize Jonathan Rumi, 
Um, I didn't recognize the nuns, the NUNs, who were pictured there, but I'm excited to see them. And it, it made me think, next year, they ought to, um, they ought to have a nuns for nuns. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Right? Don't you think they should have an ad campaign that's the nuns for the nuns? I mean, I'm just saying. I think that would be that would be okay. that would be incredible. Um, stand up to Jewish hate um, was also platformed um, during during the Super Bowl. I did think it was interesting that a specifically targeted ad um, recognizing just how much anti-Semitic hate is being expressed in the culture right now. Um, that they used the opportunity of the Super Bowl to, you know, to to raise awareness about that. Oh, yeah. Since October 7th, according to uh, ADL, I believe the number is it's seen a 300 percent uptick in hate and uh, hate that's being expressed through uh, violent assault or attack on uh, Jewish Americans. It's it's unbelievable right now. And the and the ad that they sh- they aired and then also the longer version ad that was on their website was absolutely beautiful and moving of just a neighbor being a neighbor and standing up and being an ally similar to what Naboth needed in First Kings 21, an ally for someone that seeks your demise. Yeah, and the encouragement to stand up in the face of silence, um not that the people being targeted now are are quote unquote your people, right? I just thought it was um it was so sweet and so dear the way that the the way that it was approached um and the and the call to not not be silent. If those being targeted um are people, then those people are precious to God. And even if they're not quote unquote your people, um you can't stand alongside and remain silent when they're being um, when hatred thrives, hatred thrives on the silence of others was part of the message. And I thought that was um, really timely and poignant. All right, we got to take a very brief break. When we come back, um, uh, gosh, we have so many things that we could talk about. <laughs> um, and so I'm going to let you, I'm going to let you pick like a candy from the Valentine's Day dish. I'm going <laughs> to let, uh, I'm going to let Nick Pitts pick the topic next. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. This is your birthday song. It isn't very long. Hey, Faith Radio is celebrating 75 years of bringing faith to life. That's right. We are 75 this year. So to celebrate, we are giving away 75 Faith Radio birthday boxes packed with all kinds of fun things to help you grow in your walk of faith and, yes, celebrate with us. So we're going to be celebrating the birth and growth and future of Faith Radio all year long. And you are an integral part of the Faith Radio family. And so we want to send you a gift. How fun is that? This is our birthday song. It isn't very long. So to enter to win a Faith Radio birthday box today, come to MyFaithRadio.com. Do you have those like little heart-shaped candies in a dish for tomorrow? Have you thought about uh, Valentine's Day at all? Um, it, it doesn't matter whether or not you're getting a Valentine, you could be giving Valentines. And so, uh, yeah, our brother Nick Pitts is here today. Um, Nick, reach into the candy bowl right now and draw out one of the things that you and I thought we might talk about. But if we talked about everything on the list, it would take till tomorrow. So what do you want to talk about? Well, you know, I've cleared my schedule just in case you want to continue to talk. But nevertheless, uh, if I'm reaching into that candy bowl, just know that similar to the uh, Super Bowl party that I was at yesterday in our neighborhood, there was these nerd gummies that were in that uh, traditional heart-shaped candies. 
Oh my goodness. Just a reminder of God's goodness and grace on this world. But nevertheless, let's not get distracted. Let's touch on the latest Gallup numbers relative to ethics uh, and individuals that are viewed morally uh, relative to profession from 2019 to 2023. And what we're going to see is that nurses are the highest rated profession relative to views of acting ethically and morally. And what we're finding is clergy have taken a precipitous decline from being 40% of Americans viewing them as ethically and morally to now dropping down to 32%. All right. So here's what Nick's talking about. So Gallup um, is a is a survey organization, and they have for a number of years been asking average Americans to sort of rate um, how much they trust uh, people in different professions. It is probably not going to surprise you that like car salespeople are very, very low on the on the list. Um, like it's like, you know, nine percent like that or eight percent like it's low. Um, but, but others aren't much higher than that. Like, you know, uh, members of Congress actually are now the least trusted, um, in terms of professions. Nurses top the list. Veterinarians are way up there as are engineers and dentists, medical doctors and pharmacists. Um, but, um, clergy, as Nick has noted, um, have taken a precipitous decline. So let me ask this question this way. Um, do you trust... Members of the clergy, do you trust people who are in the profession of leading the church in this generation, of serving as pastors um, and elders and deacons in congregations? Do you trust them? And has your trust related to members of the clergy, has it gone up or has it gone down um, over the last number of years? So that's really the the conversation here. Um uh, Nick, you have any thoughts on, you know, why? I mean, it, first of all, the numbers are down across the board. It's not as if clergy are the only oh, yeah. ones that people trust less. So I thought that was interesting. Do we just trust each other less these days? Yeah, based on everything I've been able to read, we, we're just we're seeing this precipitous uh, drop in trust relative to various not only industries, but also our neighbors as well. You can go back. 50 years and it was approximately 70% of Americans that said they could trust their neighbor. And now back in 2019, the last time that survey was done, it it had dropped down to less than 33%. So we're seeing this drop in the general decline in trust. And I think a key component of it that I want to illuminate is this thing called truth default theory. And what truth default theory uh, entails is this idea that we trust people until we don't. We have a natural built in assumption that we can trust someone until enough doubt comes that our trust withers away. And so what I what you continue to see, and if we look at this latest Gallup numbers in light of the truth default theory, is we have a certain expectation we place upon nurses that's different from clergy. Just like we have a certain expectation when we walk onto a car lot, then different than when we walk into a sanctuary and view a, a t- listen to a pastor. They have various levels of expectations. And so when you see a pastor failing is a lot different than a used car salesman failing, is a lot different than a nurse failing. And what we're seeing is that there are headlines because, again, it just gets the clicks. And so it's going to generate that attention of individuals that are just seeing churches continue to falter, pastors continue to morally fail. And it's causing them to see, well, if it happens here, I have enough doubts that have now clouded my trust to now I just 
I, I just don't think as highly as I once did. That's why we're starting to see this decline become a little bit more steep. I think um, that somewhere we need to regain or we need to refresh a conversation about the, the language of practice related to particular professions. Um, because historically, there's really like the practice of medicine, which meant we didn't actually expect them to get it right every time. It was we acknowledged that, you know, every time was basically an, an open experiment, the practice of law and the practice of ministry. Like these, these three were historically the professions that we sort of had the expectation that nobody was going to get them right all the time. They, they, they were all, you know, the practice. And I, and maybe now that we lump every profession into, uh, you know, we put every profession or every vocation on an equal playing field. Um, maybe we have lost that sense that some professions are still a practice. Oh yeah. Completely agree. And here's where I would, here's where I would, I would further illuminate and I would further kind of build on what you said. Uh, there is a difference between when we know that no one's perfect, that everyone's going to fail. Uh, right. Uh, we hope, hopefully though, they're existing in a system that acknowledges their failure and seeks to correct it. I think there are instances that we can point to that we know very clearly off the top of our heads where there have been moments where a pastor or a religious person has failed at their practice and there has been a cover up or there has been a sense mm. of trying to of, of trying to not correct the issue properly and appropriately and there have been instances like what happened down here in Texas earlier this week where a pastor failed the church acknowledged it quickly and they made the decision to correct the mistake that's when systems are operating properly, understanding that people fail. But then when there are systems that are meant to cover up, that's when there's issues. Yeah, and, and the loss of trust that is created because of the malpractice of a particular professional um, then, you know, then throws shade on the rest of, of everybody else in that in that profession, at least for a period of time. Um, all right, so here's what I want you to do today. Um, I want you to consider how hard it is to be a doctor or a lawyer or a pastor, um, and I want you to reach out in love. I want you to reach out in love today. Uh, tomorrow's Valentine's Day. It's also um, tomorrow's also Ash Wednesday. Um, pastors uh, need our encouragement, and so let's encourage them in the practice of ministry today. Um, you can find one pastor. You can find one member of the clergy. That's uh, that's that's do your love today. Right. You and I owe a debt of love and we owe a debt of gratitude. So let's extend some love today um, to to a member of the clergy, whoever that may be, wherever they may be serving, however they may be serving. Just reach out and say, hey, just want to be sure, you know, you are loved. Um, Nick, you are loved. Happy Valentine's Day, my brother. Um, We look forward to talking with you again. When we talk with you again, it will be in the midst of the of the season of Lent, and we will be making our way towards Jerusalem. So, um, so encouragement on on your journey of faith as well. The sentiment is reciprocated. Y'all have a great rest of the day. Hey, we love you, man. That is Nick Pence. He's a fellow at the Institute for Global Engagement. You can read what he is thinking about every single day at thebriefing.net. It was um, 129 days ago, October the 7th, that Hamas militants crossed the border into Israel. Um, They slaughtered more than a thousand people.
They raped and brutalized and terrorized entire communities. Um, They burned people alive. And they abducted more than 200 people and took them back across the border as hostages. More than 100 people remain captive. 129 days. Um, the, The captivity of those individuals is at the center of the ongoing conversation about um, about Israel's response and the war they are carrying out, not only to retrieve their people, um, but to bring an end to those who who started this, and that would be um, Hamas. So we're going to continue our ongoing conversation with Luke Moon. We're going to get an update from him about two hostages that Israel has um, gone in and saved. This is one of those stories about help having to come from the outside. Um, You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Joining us again today is our friend Luke Moon from the Philos Project. You can connect with Luke and find out more at philosproject.org. Good morning, Luke. Good morning. So I would like to talk with you about these two hostages who have been freed by the Israeli military. Um, maybe tell us the story and what you know about these guys. It was quite, the, it was a combined effort by not only the IDF, but Shin Bet, which is like the FBI of, of Israel, and then also Israeli police. All of them were somehow involved in this. Uh, these two gentlemen were Argentinian which is really interesting because there's a really interesting exchange going on on my WhatsApp and Facebook groups that I'm part of with particularly Orthodox Jews who commented about the fact that the president of Argentina was in Israel last week. He prayed at the Western Wall. He committed to moving the embassy from Tel Aviv, the Argentinian embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And then it, the two hostages that were released or rescued are Argentinian Israelis. People are like, make of it what you will, but that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, well, I'm reading here from something in the New York Times today that says that um, the president of Argentina's office did release a statement that um, acknowledging that he had raised the subject of Argentine hostages during his meetings with Israeli leaders. So, I mean, I don't think that would be surprising any head of state from around the world who has um, citizens of their country that, you know, hold dual citizenship and are a part of these hostages who are um, continuing to be held, you know, obviously that would be something that you would raise in conversation. Um, these um, these two men, um, Fernando and Louis, Fernando Simon Marmon and Louis Har, um, 60 and 70 years old, um, say to, you know, said to be very thin, but in good health. October the 7th is a long time ago now. I mean, like, I just, I I think I'm encouraged that they are um, in good health and appear to, you know, be in their right mind. Um, But October 7th is a long time ago. Can we talk a little bit about the status of other hostages and how many Israeli families um, have learned that, you know, their loved ones have actually died in the meantime? Yeah, there was a there was a notification that went out this last week uh, to Israeli uh, hostage families, letting them know that at least another thirty one beyond the ones that they had had known were were presumed uh, to have died. Actually, they had they had evidence that they were no longer alive. That's 
tragic, uh, but also I think provides a little bit of closure uh, for those families uh, that were not aware often of what was going on, uh, the suffering that was endured, what the remaining hostages who are alive have endured, I think is probably un unspeakable. Two of the hostages that were women uh, were repeatedly raped in the while they were hostages. And, you know, the news reports out of that have just been horrific. And so I think, you know, at one sense, you're, you're saddened for those families, but in another sense, you're like, uh, at least they have they now have closure. But it's also not enough that the hostages come back alive. The expectation is that the uh, the bones will be returned, and that's in the count of the number of hostages. Actually, includes four Israelis soldiers that died several years ago that Hamas has the bones of. And so if you're familiar with the, the, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, we, we know how significant the, the bones of the fathers are. And so that obviously, uh, you know, has a significant place in the kind of story of the Jewish people. And so having the ability to bury the bones, uh, even of a loved one who has passed away, uh, is, is quite significant. We're talking with Luke Moon from the Philos Project. We're talking a bit of a status update here in terms of what's going on in Israel. Hamas tunnels, a very, very significant Hamas tunnels, have been found beneath the United Nations um, headquarters in Gaza, UNRWA, which we've talked about before. Tell us this story. Yeah, uh, the United Nations Relief Works Agency, they're the ones responsible for all Palestinian refugees in the, in the United Nations kind of framework, there are two organizations that, that handle refugees. One is called UN High Commission for Refugees, UNHCR, and the other is UN Relief Works Agency. Now, if you're a refugee from any other place in the world, you're talking Darfur in Sudan, Ethiopia, Thailand, Myanmar, Burma, you know, Bhutan, anywhere, you're handled by the UNHCR. If you are a Palestinian, you're handled by UNRWA. Now, UNRWA has, I, I believe UNRWA is, is really per, has been one of the means of perpetuating the conflict because they, they, they are providing a lot of education, a lot of humanitarian services, but the education is all around the fact that don't ever forget what the Jews did to you. So there is this really kind of nasty underbelly to, to UNRWA, and it turns out that underneath the headquarters of UNRWA in Gaza was basically the IT department for, for Hamas. They found the electrical wires going through the floor, server rooms underneath, IT command and control centers. And there was a, it was a funny exchange yesterday on, on Twitter where a guy said, I install basements for a living. And I can tell you the number of people who don't hear something happening underneath them is absolutely zero. Mm -hmm. It's impossible to think that UNRWA was unaware of the fact that their electricity and IT services were for Hamas were underneath the, the building. They keep telling the world that they, oh, we didn't know, we didn't know. But come on, nobody's believing that anymore. I think we already have had this conversation. It's it's quite interesting to me that, you know, the, the UN seems to, in my view, hate two things above all else. One is the, the, the state of Israel, and the second is babies in the womb. 
And it's not surprising to me that that's what they hate. Yeah, we're talking with Luke Moon. We'll be back in just a moment. We're going to shift our attention specifically to Rafa. Um, it is a city in southern uh, Gaza, in the, on the Gaza Strip. Um, and we're going to talk about um, the, the state of play in Rafa. You're going to hear that name in the news. Um, and uh, and we, want you to, we want you to know what's going on there. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. As we consider the life of Jesus and the life of the first generation of Christians— Reading here the book of Acts and all the letters to the Christians in the New Testament, we see people who like wake up. They come to see and understand and then receive Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And it changes everything. We see Christians then telling other people about the good news and inviting them to respond in repentance, be baptized and follow Jesus. The movement of Christianity grows person by person and then exponentially as people walking in darkness receive the light of Christ and want others to know what they know and have what they have. Well, you and I are living in dark days. People need light. And Jesus is the light of the world today in the same way that he was the light of the world at the beginning of creation and at the first Christmas and throughout his life on earth and in his radiance now at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is the light of the world. So if you're walking in darkness of any kind today, I invite you to consider Jesus. If you'd like to know more about what it means to begin a relationship with Christ or to chat with someone about it, just text the word FAITH to 41224. So I want you to imagine that you have um, fled from your home. Uh, You have traveled as far as your feet will carry you um, before you reach a place where, you know, you hope you're going to be safe. You were told to travel south and you did. And you, um, with tens of thousands of other people, are now in the city of Rafa. Well, now the city of Rafa in the southern part of the Gaza Strip is the place where Hamas is you know, sort of the last vestiges of it are hiding out. And so the Israelis want to um, dispense with that, but that means they got to figure out what to do with more than a million people who are in Rafa, the civilian population. So Luke Moon is here from the Philos Project. You can find him at philosproject.org. Luke, kind of give us a sense of the state of play in the city of Rafa. Yeah. So if we imagine, you know, the first the first kind of wave that Israel did when they went into Gaza was they cut Gaza in half. They went right through the middle and then they pushed from the north. They basically created this kind of, they was surrounded Hamas that was in the north and just kind of worked their way through. And when they took, had complete control of the north, then they went through and they, you know, destroyed a bunch of tunnels and they found a bunch of stuff. Second effort has been to, to push south. And in the process, they have basically come to the point where there's a little strip called Rafa. It's right up against the the Egyptian border. Now, Egypt has spent over a billion dollars in building a the most incredible wall that you've ever seen. I mean, it might be it. You know, they might see it from space at some point. It might be like the Great Wall of China. I mean, they this thing is massive, barbed wire concrete the whole nine yards like multi layers of that because they don't want any palestinian refugees from gaza into egypt and so all these people are backed up against kind of that wall now the it's clear that if there's the hostages hamas 
everybody at this point is going to be in Rafa. Everybody knows that because everywhere else in Gaza has already been taken by the IDF. And so there's a big push for Israel not to go into Rafa, which is quite surprising to me because everybody said, oh, we got it. Yeah, take care of Hamas. Well, that's where that's their last holdout. So they got to take it. Now, the plan for the IDF is at this point, they have allow people to, to move from the south, move back towards the north. But in the process, they're identifying who's going. In, in many of these, these kind of humanitarian corridors that have opened up, they have found Hamas fighters who have tried to escape, people who participated in October 7th massacres, trying to escape to different parts. And so the IDF is going to put up some pretty significant population corridors to allow people to move, but they're going to be checking every single person that comes through. And once once this war starts for Rafa, uh, the war will probably be over in two weeks, I bet. Mm. Um, it's interesting to me looking at a map. There, There is a Rafa on the Egyptian side of the border, border and there is a Rafa on the Gaza side of the border. And so I think we have heard lots of references to the Rafa gate. I, I presume that is between Rafa yeah. on the Egyptian side and Rafa on the Gaza side. Yep. And that's what, and that gate has been has basically been closed mm. uh, since the war started. Yeah, I mean there was there was Americans who were citizens that were evacuated out of Gaza and they went through the Rafa gate, but that was basically in in late October. Uh, and since then, almost nobody's been out since then. The the aid going into, there's there's over 100 trucks a day of humanitarian aid going into Gaza. Those trucks uh, are thoroughly scanned and stuff like that um, and doing their best to try and make sure that it goes to that the actual citizens of Gaza and not Hamas. But we're, we're really coming down to the end of this of this war uh, once Gaza falls. Uh, I think they will find the rest of the hostages and they will find the rest of Hamas and then this thing will be over. So if you're wondering, um, this wall that exists between Egypt and um, and Gaza, Egypt has constructed a concrete border wall that reaches six meters into the ground um, and is topped with barbed wire and has berms that um, are that include enhanced surveillance at all its border posts. And just in the last uh, few days, <clears throat> this report out of Reuters says they've added 40 tanks and armored personnel carriers to the northeastern Sinai because they want to bolster security on their border with Gaza. It would seem, Luke, that Egypt, Jordan, others, they're just not interested in having more people from Gaza move into into their lands. And so, I mean, at some point, we just, we just as a world have to talk about where all these people are going to go and how they're going to live. Um, and uh, yeah. because, you know, Gaza is a mess and somebody's going to have to rebuild it when all of this is done. So, you know, this is a conversation that I look forward to continuing to have with you in the future. Um, but maybe you can just remind us, why is it that none of, of the you know, neighboring countries, all of which are Muslim, none of them want the Palestinians. Well, it's because they all have a history of of the Palestinians when they come into their countries, they are an incredibly destabilizing force. Yasser Arafat tried to overthrow the king of Jordan. Mm. Uh, and basically it's Palestinian 
they they ended up being being driven out of out of Jordan. They went to Lebanon and then started a civil war in Lebanon. And then ISIS is is kind of crawling all over the Sinai right now. And uh, Sisi, who's the president of Egypt, he he's like, I don't I don't want this. This is a a group of people that have basically for the last seventy years been in a sense used as tools by the Arab world against Israel, but it's a little bit like playing with fire. You know, you can light a f- candle, but you can also burn down a house, right? Like, and, and that's, I think they're afraid of burning down the house. They don't mind the candle, but they don't want to burn down the house. That's good. Um, it's probably a good place for us to leave it. Um, Luke, thank you so much. As always, we uh, we always look forward to talking with you. It's always very, very helpful. How can we be praying for you um, and and others who are engaged in the work of peace in the region? Well, it's uh, it's a challenging time right now because there's, and I've said this before, there's no trust. And mm-hmm. it is very hard to do any kind of peace building when there is no trust. I'm not, I'm, I'm, there's a difference between low trust, which is kind of normal, and no trust, which is where we're at. And so it's going to take a, a long time. A lot of people have lost friends over this that, you know, used to work with them in kind of peace building work. And it's going to take a while to, to, to figure out how we move forward on those. Father, we come before you as brothers and sisters in Christ, bearing up our brother Luke and his colleagues who are engaged in rebuilding peace, piece by piece. And so, Father, we ask that they would have the very peace of the mind of Christ as they seek to um, put the pieces back together in a place that is so deeply and desperately broken. And we just ask that you would strengthen them for this work that um, that you have placed before all of us, that we might sow peace in the generation in which we live, all to the glory of Christ, who who alone is the Prince of Peace, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you, my brother. Thank you. So a little bit more to that story related to um, the Israeli Shin Bet and IDF soldiers who liberated these two men from um, from their captivity. Um, they called out to them in Hebrew, we have come to save you. We have come to save you. You are coming home. And um, they laid their bodies across these men as the... Um, air assault took place in the surrounding community. And then um, as they were leading them to these, you know, rescue vehicles, one of the Shin Bet um, members saw that um, Lewis was barefoot. And so he picked him up and he carried him so that he wouldn't injure his feet on the glass and the stones that were obviously all over the floor at that point. And then as soon as he got him to the vehicle, um, this member uh, of the Shin Bet took off his own boots and he put them on Lewis. And then he continued the rescue um, without his shoes. And I was just reminded um, in sort of imagining those moments, how desperately these men had been hoping that help would come, recognizing that help has to come from the outside. And that's the salvation that God sends. It comes from the outside. Jesus had to take on human flesh and dwell among us because we could not save ourselves. Jesus had to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Um, 
Jesus sends help from the outside, and his name is Jesus. This um, this system that we live in is not closed. It, it um, a thin veil exists between this world and the spiritual realm. And so if you need help from the outside today, if you want to know the way home, his name is Jesus and he has come. And no matter what darkness or captivity you're living in today, um, Jesus has come to save you. He comes to seek and to save the lost. He carries us on his back, literally, um, so that we might go all the way home to the Father's house and find our place with him. You can live a liberated life today in Jesus. So I invite you into that fellowship. And for those of you who know Christ, I invite you today to demonstrate that kind of love to somebody else. Go seek them out. Go into the dark places and shine the light. And if necessary, take off your shoes and carry them. This is the love of Christ for you today. We've got another hour together. This is Mornings with Carmen. You're listening to Faith Radio. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Podcasts like this are available because of your support. If it's important to you to hear things that encourage your faith, click the link in the show notes to give now. And thanks.